Although, I've seen some scripts I know the words weren't spelled right. There was hardly any commas in it at all. So I don't think that's too important. Hey, you want to get on the train here, or you want to ruin another take, huh? It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film. Man, I don't drop character till I've done a DVD commentary. You want to eat the writer? Be my guest. That will leave you to explain how else your character is supposed to get to Bremen. Welcome back to another episode of the In the Mouth of Darkness Chatcast. Joining me today is Billy Das, the indie dork. What's up, Billy? Man, not, nothing nothing but great things, man. I'm excited to be here. Still living your best life? Every day, all day. That's right. And I am also living my best life because I am Brad Gullickson, the host of today's episode, and we are bringing you another conversation from the Chattanooga Film Festival that we partook in, what, two weeks ago? Yeah, that sounds about right. Man, I love Chattanooga. I, I love that it's the gift that keeps on giving. Yes, for sure. And we are going to be bringing you lots of lovely chats in the coming weeks. Uh, this week... We are talking to Travis Stevens, producer extraordinaire. He's been on the podcast in the past, talking about Snowfort Pictures with our buddy Dave Lawson. Yep. And he is returning. I'm very excited about this because it is his feature debut. He is the director of The Girl on the Third Floor, a really rad ghost story that we saw at Chattanooga. I'm just so excited for him, man. He's like the sweetest person. And like, I saw his movie and it's fucking gnarly and amazing and just a huge success. And just good for that, dude. Yeah. To steal your word. It's a very goopy (laughs) haunted house story. Damn straight it is. (laughs) Uh, Starring CM Punk of all people. And he's really good in it. Yeah. Charismatic as all hell. I know that's a shock. Not at all. Uh, (laughs) But he is really, really good leading the girl on the third floor. And we talk to Travis about that a little bit. Um, We talk about the goopy nature of it. Uh, Oh, yeah. We talk about these amazing inserts that start the film. I love, love, love this location and how Travis shoots it. Um, Yeah, I'm just so excited to have Travis back. And I'm just so happy for that guy. Right. All right, so without much more blather, let's get into this conversation. We had it behind the scenes of the Chattanooga Theater Center in a very um, cabaret-like dressing room. Man, it's a great environment. Uh, You might hear some haunted doors opening and closing while we have this conversation. right, 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 right. right. (laughs) Yeah, not at all creepy. And it was about 50 degrees back there. (laughs) Freezing. (laughs) But so many moon pies. A lot of moon pies. Surrounded by moon pies and beer. (laughs) Nothing better. All right, let's get into it, guys. And we're back at the Chattanooga Film Festival talking to producer-turned-director Travis Stevens about his new film, Girl on the Third Floor. Yay! Yay. <laughs> Welcome, Travis. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Oh, man, no, the pleasure is all ours. We were talking before the show about the transition from producer to director and how you used to be the guy that would come in, be a moral support, a voice of positivity... Mm-hmm a voice of education, and now you're in the director's hot seat. What has that transition been like for you? I don't know if everybody has this experience, but I, I think there is a um, uh, the perception of what a producer does maybe is, is a bit vague in the general population's mind, and maybe each movie is different and every sort of relationship is different, but in my experiences, I've been really fortunate to work with a lot of super collaborative writer-directors. So every movie that I've produced, 
I have felt like one of the storytellers on it. So in some ways, that transition from here's the story I want to tell, here are the people I want to tell it with, and here's what I want the movie to do, um, I, I had some experience for that. Uh, the big difference between what I'd done in the past and this was do I have a partner that I can have those conversations with to sort of like um, focus those ideas. So in some ways I felt totally prepared for it, maybe overly prepared because uh, for 10 years I had sort of produced lower budget genre films. And then in other ways I felt completely abandoned and lost and uh, just hiding in a basement hoping <laughs> that the tornado would pass. Well, let's talk about that then. Yeah, let's, yeah, the, yeah. the last part there. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what were your, your biggest challenges or, or maybe even biggest fears in uh, bringing this film to life? I think it's your concern is your ability to articulate an idea, uh, uh, the mechanics of cinema, or, or at least that was my concern. Where it's like a producer, it's very easy to be like, Yeah, I want this scene to have some more human moments. And then it's like, Okay, well, how do you actually implement that? And how do you make sure that the dialogue your characters are saying is actually conveying something meaningful and isn't just a bunch of garbage? Uh, and and so I think that was a huge challenge. And then I think the uh, mechanics of, of how many hours in a day and how much movie you can shoot in those hours and sort of how to structure a scene to become achievable, I had my head wrapped around that. But whether or not that was going to end up in something that plays in a theater, I didn't know. Uh, and so, yeah, it was, a, it, it was interesting. It was a mix of sort of, like I said, feeling super qualified and completely like I was trying to speak a language that I had just listened to some books on tape. Yeah. Well, process-wise of realizing the idea of what the film is versus actually shooting, casting, produ- you know, mm-hmm. bringing it to life, like what, what was your process of making sure that your idea of the film became the film? Mm-hmm. And did it? And yeah. did you succeed at that? I mean, you know, uh, on this one, uh, I wrote. Um, I think it was eight golden rules, and I printed them out, and I had them in my notebook, and I had them on my wall of, uh, of my house before I went out to set, and then in the house I was staying at during pre-production, and it was just a, uh, a visual reminder of like what I was trying to do with the movie. And some of the stuff was was very simple and some of the stuff was more abstract, but I would just constantly check in with that and be like, this is what you said a year ago you were trying to do with the movie and is the decision you're making right now in line with these golden rules? Uh, And yeah, now, I mean, I tell people now, I'm like like 96% Uh comfortable with at least what is on that screen is to the best of my ability and, and, and achieves what I was setting out to. And how much of the film did you decide to change in the process of production? Actually not, not much. And I think that, that was one of the benefits of, of being a producer, which is I was given a house and, and I knew the actual, uh, capabilities of the house and sort of coming from a producer background of knowing, at this budget level, how many days you have to shoot, what you can sort of achieve in that amount of time in a space, like really helped me sort of write a script where even though a lot of crazy shit happens in the house and walls get destroyed and ceilings collapse and people 
sort of come through walls and we're inside walls, like all that stuff, it wasn't uh, created in the abstract. I was like, I've got 20 days. That probably gives me four to five days to just focus on these special effects scenes. So what what wild visuals can I come up with that I can achieve in, in that sort of time frame? Um, so during actual shooting, it, it really did feel, um, I felt it would be like D-Day. Mm. I felt like I was an experienced enough general where I came up with a battle plan. I had the resources, the troops, the, 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 the sort of topography of what we were trying to do to actually accomplish it. And, and I feel like we, we did, um, I'm curious uh, moving forward if I'll have that sort of luxury because in some ways with any storytelling, if you have certain landmarks defined and you know like, oh, I need to have the church and I need to have the, the street and I need to have this, it's sort of then you're filling in the gaps and that's a little bit easier. Um, just staring at a blank page, I'm curious if, if that's a lot more challenging. Hmm. Well, I think that's a, a fascinating aspect. And I, 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 I was not aware of it until your Q&A after the screening that – you were presented with the set first before you even thought about what to do with this location. Um, so you're given this supposedly haunted house and you have the location and you're now going to write to it. Uh, haunted house as a genre is a staple. Many, many great films, many, many mediocre films and below. Uh, what was your first like impulse with this location? Like, Yeah. Well, I think I think for me, if somebody had said, Travis Stevens, what is the movie you want to make? I probably couldn't have answered it. But when they said, Travis Stevens, I have a haunted house and I've got X <laughs> amount of money. What's the story you can tell there? Like, I was like, oh, I can do that because it's like a challenge. And like being a producer, you're trying to sort of solve problems. Um, so for me with this, was sort of like, okay, what are the aspects of Haunted House movies that I love? What are the aspects that we can achieve at this budget? And then what are the new areas we can sort of push this into that maybe people haven't seen a million times before? Uh, and so then a lot of it sort of became just flipping the script, you know, trying to do stuff that sort of honored uh, iconic Haunted House movie stuff but then pay it off in a way that people might not have seen before. So in some ways, a lot of it became sort of, um, I would imagine like a magician at the Magic Castle in LA where you're performing a card trick for a set of magicians that understand card tricks. And what you're doing is trying to put a spin on it that those other professionals haven't seen And they're before. all looking for it too. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. they all know. And I think that was my approach for this. It's like everybody knows these tropes. And let's acknowledge the tropes and then let's find something fun to do that they're not expecting. Did you find that freeing? I, I mean, it's not because like, look, I'm going to perform to a room full of pros. To me, oh, that sounds pretty intimidating. Yeah, I think especially transitioning from a, a, a producer who's worked with so many talented filmmakers, that's what it needed to be. You know, like, it's like I've worked with Evan Katz and Adam Wingard and, and uh, Dennis Widmere and Kevin Colch and Sarah Dean and Smith, like these people who are currently making the top tier genre content that people are consuming. I can't just 
make something, uh, I need to come out and be like, yeah, <laughs> here I am. Yeah. And, and not that I think this um, uh, works as well as, as their films, but I needed to set that bar and, and at least try to get over it. So. I think for me as a fan of uh, haunted house stories, you practically win me over just over the credits of establishing through inserts and, you know, just here is the biology and the geography mm. of the home. Yeah. Um, so for you and your golden rules and your idea of what a haunted house movie should be, what are you trying to meet, match genre-wise, yeah. and to your words, you know, subvert as well? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Um, so one um, it didn't make it on the list, but one of the internal golden rules was this is a movie about people or a person who presents an image and the truth of who they are is not that image. So I was like, the first shot of this movie needs to be a reflection of somebody that we think we see a person and then we reveal, no, it's a, 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 a reversed image of them. So the first shot in the movie was him coming in the house in a mirror and what I realized uh, in the edit process was intellectually that made a lot of sense, but man, the audience might appreciate a moment <laughs> to sort of get the the taste of this house before the main character oh, comes in. Taste, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you can taste that house <laughs> in those inserts, and it's disgusting. <laughs> so, so then, and and again, I don't know how other people write how other people make movies, but for me, it's sort of breaking these down into sort of solvable problems. But I was like, the audience needs a taste of this house. And I was like, all right, so opening credit sequence. And I was like, what about a series of shots that what we're seeing mirrors the uh, job title that's on screen? And so having uh, the editor's credits fall over uh, a, a series of uh, a brick wall because what editors do, they sort of, you know, mason together a bunch of bricks and make it into something. I love it. And, uh, you know, the, the score comes over a broken um, uh, intercom thing that plays later in the movie. So it's sort of finding, like, hey, there's plot things that happen at minute 20, minute 30, minute 45. Let's set them up in the opening credits uh, with these, with these titles. And- the audience can sense a playful nature yeah. from the filmmaker through those yeah. credits as well. Yeah. So yeah, I was really fortunate. You don't, especially at this micro budget level, you don't always get a chance to make your thing better. And we had sort of designed this to give a little bit of breathing room, but I was like super fortunate to be able to go back and pick up an extra two days of filming to get those opening credits and sort of bolster some of, uh, some of the action stuff that happens later on. I I like I I love this conversation. You know, I've, I've mostly just been listening to you guys like talk back and forth. And Travis, you sound so measured and so calm and so put together. And if you haven't seen this movie, I think you have this vision of a very art house horror film that you have. But it's goopy and gnarly as fuck. And there's all these effects in there that are just man. Yeah, if you're gonna do it, do it. Mm-hmm. It's like. Whatever the thing is, it's got to be the thing. And and I think I learned that um, on Starry Eyes and We Are Still Here, where in the process of editing the movie and screening it for people we trusted, 
really realizing like, hey, no matter how much you're trying to elevate something or, or cross-pollinate genres, at its core, it needs to deliver on what its main thing is. And if its main thing is a horror film, it needs to deliver on that. So going into this, I was like, yeah, I want to make a movie about um, sort of being a better person, but I can't lose sight of the fact that this is a haunted house movie and we need to have a lot of crazy wild shit. And, and what happens on screen needs to tie to that that core theme of like, how do you be a better person? And what happens when you're not honest with your spouse? And what happens when you're not honest with yourself? Well, so being a better person, uh, presenting your protagonist, uh, you're speaking a lot to toxicity uh, in current culture, um, did, was that one of the first things that popped into your house or into your house? Yeah. Into your head when yeah. you were trying to populate your haunted house? Was Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, the financiers had said they wanted a movie about a couple moving into a house, uh, with a baby on the way, which is fine. It's like, okay, that's a good starting point. But then for me to find my own emotional connection to that, I was like, well, what is it? And and I think for me, I was sort of like, you no. Know, what happens if those people moving in, if one of them, even if they don't admit it to themselves, isn't really ready for that? And where do you take that? And and that's where that sort of, I mean, toxicity thing, it really, whatever the gender is, it's just about being like, are you being totally honest with yourself? And I was like, as soon as I clued into that, uh, and the house is actually across the street from a church. And I was like, well, then we have an opportunity to really explore that idea of like, you know, our time on this earth is a series of decisions. And we're going to, there's going to be consequences for those decisions, whether it's what you eat or or what you say or what you do. And that was something that I was like, okay, this is my as a 46-year-old guy who's had uh, failed relationships and who is constantly trying to sort of become a better person, I was like, that's something I can connect to and, and explore. Um, and that became a lot more interesting to me than just sort of like stock. Mm-hmm. Stock people moving into a stock situation where some stock stuff happens. And I think everything then sprouts from that. It'd be like... Uh, Matt Damon in the movie where he's on Mars and he's like, how do I bring life to this situation? You know, and that's what you do. You sort of look at what you have and you find a way to bring life to it. So, So, you know, following forward in that vein, one of the things that you talked about in the Q&A was the importance of forgiveness. Uh, And it sounded to me like the importance of the forgiveness is a finite resource. Yeah. And I was curious if you could talk a little bit about your personal philosophy that sort of leads you to explore that idea. I think I think people make decisions and there's a consequence for those decisions and and whether or not you forgive them or or not comes to the sincerity of their awareness of why they made that decision. Um, I think everybody's got uh, the the capacity for good and the capacity of bad. And um, sometimes somebody can do something that in the moment 
they think is justified and, and righteous and they don't think they're doing something bad. And later on, if they find out it hurt you, how they um, uh, address that with you, if they say, no, no, you're crazy, or no, no, I didn't do anything wrong, versus empathy. And like, I didn't realize that made you feel that way. And I didn't realize that I didn't think about that. Like just taking that moment to pause and, and, and put yourself in somebody else's shoes, I think is especially in this day and age, like so important. And I think for me, I'm sort of like in genre or in any film, it's like, I don't want to make something that isn't adding value. You know, I want it to be awesome. I want it to kick ass. I want it to be scary. I want it to be slick and fun and, and wild, but I also want it to potentially add value to people's lives. And, and so on this one, I was sort of like, I want to create a, a story where, we can sort of, even if it's not overt, just say, hey, take a moment to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. And, and I think in this story, Don, the main character, doesn't think about anybody other than himself, which is like something tons of people do sure. every day. And it's like, it's, yeah, you know, you're funny, you're good looking, you're, you're cool, but you're also a piece of shit. You know, and what makes you a piece of shit is that you don't stop and think about, you know, how your actions are affecting other people. Um, and so that was really important to me. It's that difference between apology and acknowledgement. You know, like you can mm -hmm. say I'm sorry all the time, but if you're not acknowledging the reason you're saying apolo having an apology, then what's the point? Uh, what I think is interesting about your film, and I don't want to go too far into the, the plot, because I don't want to spoil anything about it. But there is, you know, there's the ticking time bomb of the film is the wife is coming <laughs> and all this stuff is happening in this house. But he does have a wife and he does have somebody who has to reconcile with his actions. And, uh, you know, at, at, at some point in the movie, she has to see her husband for who he isn't either. Yeah, I mean, that would... <laughs> Regardless of what happens with the movie after uh, the festival run and the release, for me personally, what I'm super happy with is I feel that I honored the wife's character. Oh, yeah. Where, yeah, sure. where she, I think we give the audience enough information about Don through Don's perspective for the first two acts of the movie, which is biased. I mean, we literally only see his wife at arm's distance because oh, yeah. he's looking at her on a, a cell phone. Uh, he never says, I love you. He never says I goodbye. He just gets hangs off the up. phone. Yeah. And hangs up. Mm -hmm. It's like we, we um, push her away from our protagonist. And then when she comes in and becomes the main protagonist, we have to sort of reset. And uh, I think what I'm super happy about is we've given the audience enough backstory about Don and the things that he's done. And we've shown them how Don reacts in real time to something like somebody flirting with him, uh, somebody offering him a drink, somebody, uh, uh, you know, if he doesn't get what he wants, what he does next. And so when in the, you know, later in the movie, when a version of Don is dangled in front of the wife and she says, no, that's not true. I'm like, yeah, 
That's it. That, I mean, for me, that's that's the whole point of the movie. Is like, if you have something, if somebody tells you what you want to hear in that moment, but you don't, you know, it's not true. Do you let it slide or not? If you let it slide, you're never going to move on to that next stage you need to, to be happy. You have to just be honest. So, this is like super abstract. It's like horror and it's gooey and there's tons of blood and ooze. Well, that's what's, I mean, it, it, that's what's interesting about the film to me is that ultimate decision of of hers. You know, you surround yourself with people. You partner with people. You, you uh, go into business. You go into romance with people. And you how you receive them is also a judgment on you. Yeah. And that was like the big surprise of the, of the movie for me. I, I fucking loved every bit of it, but I do take you like, this is, that's just funny listening to the conversation and having walked out of that movie, I walked out of that movie and I talked to my wife on the phone and she was like, Oh, how, how did it go? I said, Oh yeah, I, I liked it. It was gnarly as fuck. And there was some really upsetting imagery in it. Um, but you know, also a really nice message about toxicity, which is I think important to talk about, but like the gnarly as fuck thing comes out and like the movie is super fucking metal. There's all sorts of, uh, fucking amazing needle drops throughout the course of the movie. You're working with CM Punk. Yeah, yeah, what the yeah. fuck, dude? How do you come to work with CM Punk? All that stuff it feels like almost outside of my, outside of me is like the universe was, uh, the movie was set in Chicago. Uh, Phil Brooks, CM Punk is based in Chicago. The financiers and my producing partners on it, um, had worked with Bobcat Goldthwait, who had said, hey, I really like uh, Phil Brooks as an actor for this other project. So he was in their mind, and as we were, the budget dictated we were going to cast locally, so we had a list of people, and he was on the list. And and it was sort of like, I knew him from fighting, not wrestling, like from MMA, and Mm -hmm. I was like, here's a dude who doesn't need to be doing this, and he's walking that walk because it's fucking a challenge. And I was like, that's what I want. Like, this is my first movie. I I could just go and produce stuff for the rest of my life. This yeah. is my first directing thing. I want somebody who doesn't need to be an actor but wants to be an actor. That's the person I want to go on this journey with. Talked to him and was, like, super fortunate for him to be like, yeah, this is cool. Like, he got it right away. And, and, and another thing, too, is, like, I don't know if people realize this. Like, when you send a piece of material to to people and you're like, and your character's flawed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like everybody reading stuff wants to look cool yeah, and wants right, to be right. badass. Yeah, yeah. When they read stuff and they're like, and a shower is going to spit goo on your face <laughs> yeah. and you're going to shove your arm up a pipe. And, like it takes a really, really sort of self-aware, confident, cool person to be like, yeah, I want to do this because I understand what, what this is in service of. Yeah. It's not just about, you know what I'd like is some leather biker pants <laughs> and six shooters. Yeah, yeah. Yes, your character should walk into the scene wearing those. You know, like there was nothing, like with Phil, like he's he's just cool. And he's like, he understood what this, the message of this movie is and he understood what his character's role in that message was. And so we were able to like have a great time. Uh, how important was the sound of the movie for you overall? I mean, I guess yeah. Jesus sound design and and score and track. Yeah, yeah, super important. Uh, the screening here 
we, we this is a we've been working on the sound. Continue mm-hmm. working on the sound because it's so important. Um, and for me, I think uh, Herzog's uh, Nurse for, Nosferatu oh, yeah. uh-huh. was the one that really sort of like triggered in my brain how to approach haunted house movies where it needs to be a vacuum and every sound that happens in that vacuum needs to have an intention. Yeah. And uh, I think we ran out of time to get it dialed in for this screening, but right. the sound design team, uh, Corey Corkin, who did Henry Porter of a Serial Killer, he worked on that. Oh my God. <laughs> They've continued to work on it. So by the time of release, it, it'll be perfect. Uh, I mean, it, it was working pretty damn well yeah. for, for this guy right here. And, and you populate this house with marbles yeah. and dog nails, you know, the Cooper's pitter patter is so effective mm. in, in the, for, in the sound design. I mean, you're hitting all the buttons. Yeah. No, the, um, the instruments mm. were, were definitely there. Like we knew what we wanted mm-hmm. and I knew, and especially if you've ever been in a space by yourself, what you hear, like it becomes heightened. You know, you, you lose that sort of baseline sort of uh, uh, filtering stuff out to focus on who you're talking to. Like you're there and you hear the furnace, you hear the, the, the wood bend, you hear your footsteps in a completely different way. In this movie, it's a guy and his dog for, you know, 60 minutes basically in there. And, and it was about exaggerating everything. So it's like this is reality plus. Um, and, and so, yeah, yeah. And especially in this theater with the cinder block walls, like mm-hmm. there was a natural reverb happening. Mm-hmm. Super happy. The crowd was super into it. I'm just saying, like, <laughs> next time you watch it, it'll be even better. All right. Well, I look forward to it. I look it's forward like when to you that. start dating somebody, you're like, I know we just made love, yeah. Yeah. but it's going to be even better <laughs> next time. We're going to keep tinkering, <laughs> keep tinkering, working yeah, it yeah, all yeah. out. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so I think what's, what, what's uh, uh, fascinating about uh, haunted house movies uh, and how they're shot and where they're shot, you know, I've seen brilliant movies that I love that are shot on stages. I've seen locations. You are building sets, I guess, within the house occasionally, but you're in that space. So you get to hear what it sounds like alone yeah. in that house. What were the pros and cons of shooting on location? Pros is we had a lot more control. The cons is there were things that were outside of our control. And and it is like straight up, it's a haunted house. Not gonna lie, uh I haven't had to deal with it, but the uh sound design team had to deal with a lot of the uh dialogue recordings have extra frequencies in them and stuff that they've had to clean up while shooting whether it was uh, moments of energy that we were dealing with, we were like, oh, this is really intense right now. Why Why is everything intense? Or or uh, practical stuff of, of just furnaces turning on that shouldn't be turned on or air conditioners huh. turning on. Like there was a lot of that stuff that if this were the book version of this movie, the, the, the <laughs> sort of, oh, that movie we made 10 years ago, you, people would be like, yeah, right. But I mean, we were dealing with it. Huh. Um, so it was interesting. And, and, and for me, I came into it being much more like, yes, everybody in this town thinks the movie, uh, this house is haunted, but you know, that's what locals do. Uh, and then the first night walking into the place and being like, oh, no, this fucking place is, like, super haunted, and I don't belong here. And really, what was I thinking? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Like, well, why did I think I was the one? Uh, 
and and so how do you how do you address that? And and for me, it was uh, like I had a literal conversation with the house where I was like, "Hey, here's what I'm trying to do, and I might not get it right, but what I can promise you is my intentions are good to honor uh, the suffering that may have taken place here." And um, then I, I I made a tribute to the house uh, on my own, and I feel that it uh, sort of they gave us a chance, whatever energies in the house. And which just sounds so stupid to say, but <laughs> clearly guys, when you're in a place for like 16 hours a day and you're exhausted and there's four floors of it and you're up in the attic at four 30 in the morning, shot listing for a scene you're going to shoot the next day. And all of a sudden you hear a door close a floor below you, regardless of your belief system, you go, yeah, that happened. Like, I literally heard that happen, and so, fuck. I think it's just so funny because, you know, bef- before the show when we were talking, you know, we we were literally having a conversation about, um, you know, skeptics and... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, flat earthers. Flat earthers yeah. and, you know, like, just trying to interact with people and, and just sort of take a very rational approach to how things are. And it's, it's so funny. It's so funny to, like to hear walking into a space and feeling the energy of a room. But, you know, rooms have energy, man. And, and like, I, I see that happen, I guess. Yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just getting older, but I, I feel like, yeah, everything kind of does. You meet somebody and you're like, well, oh, I get along with this person. Or, oh, that person kind of rubs me the wrong way. And it's the same thing with spaces and it's yeah. the same thing. Like, it all comes down to intentions. And, and I don't know. There's something about this current age we're living in where everything's so amped up where people are like trying to get theirs and and like there's this sort of like uh aggressiveness to engagements yes that you pick up on i don't feel comfortable right now mm-hmm. this is so weird i'm at a film festival talking to somebody why am i suddenly <laughs> wanting to go back to my hotel room and avoid everybody yeah yeah you know, like, yeah q and a's are dangerous yeah um you know what I, to bring it back to your the message of your movie though it people are going to receive it certain people are going to receive it and go like sjw horror yeah. i don't need this good fuck you <laughs> yeah uh, yeah yes. no, i mean that's it yeah. I'm, I'm like i'm sorry that it, uh regardless of where things are 20 years from now right now we need art to stand up and say this is right and this is wrong mm-hmm. or, or this is what I think is right and this is what I, and we need art to try to make our current environment better and whether or not you're like I just want to be here to rock I don't yeah. want to message with my song it's cool man like fucking Motley Crue is a great band <laughs> But Fugazi (laughs) is a better band. (laughs) So, you know what I mean? Like, I get it. Like, I understand, you know, and and that's just my feeling. It's like, I I totally respect that. Uh, And and one would hope that any message of any movie does not um, uh, overshadow the enjoyment of what's actually happening on screen. But I personally, as an artist, I'm like, I'm not doing this to just churn out like uh, Backstreet Boy hits. Hmm. Like, I want to say something. I want to make the movie, uh, make the world slightly better. And, and I have this opportunity to do that through movies and I'm going to fucking do it. And if you call me a social justice warrior, great. I'll wear that with a badge of pride. 
you know, uh, one of the things I think kind of the theme of our experience at the Chattanooga Film Festival has been, you know, talking to filmmakers about the things that inspire them and where they take their inspirations from. Uh, who's who's doing that in the world with their art that you turn to and say, fuck, yeah, that's that's and as I a want. producer, you probably got a really interesting yeah. angle on that. Yeah, well, I'm about to fail miserably to follow up to the question. Um, I would say for me, uh, Instagram has been the oh, most invigorating uh, uh, sort of platform for, for, for me because you're getting exposed to fine arts, painters, photographers, sculptors, uh, as well as filmmakers. And, and I had sort of felt like, in the genre filmmaking scene, we were in this sort of perfecting imitation, but there wasn't so much innovation happening. A lot and, of nostalgia. Yeah. And, and, and it's weird because it's like, I love Hellraiser. Yeah. I don't know if I need a picture of me standing in front of the fucking Hellraiser set as an <laughs> immersive experience. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I get it, and I love that people love it, and it's keeping this this genre alive. But there's a, this thing where we're sort of navel gazing to the point where we're like trying to impregnate our own navels. And that's <laughs> not how we give birth, you know. And and I, it's certainly in L.A where there's such a vibrant sort of uh, horror community, there's a lot of stuff like or, or, or art shows and, and films and, and uh, T-shirts and whatever that is just sort of looking back. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, I started being really sort of uninspired by that because I was like, yes, I love that. But what's the thing that's going to, you know, because the, the people who, you know, uh, Kubrick making The Shining was looking forward and, and Carpenter and Halloween was looking forward. Like these people are, are, are looking forward. And, and where is that in our current thing? And for me, it was Instagram and sort of hmm. uh, I think on, on my film, Sadie, her creature design was was totally uh, inspired by this sculptor, Sarah Sicken, whose dad was a makeup guy back in the 70s and 80s, yeah, wow. and now she's a fine artist who's doing these sort of like uh, latex sculpts and stuff uh, where it's like it's like horror adjacent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's like painters who are doing disturbing paintings, but it's not painters doing paintings of Leatherface. Right, yeah. right, right. You know, it's like they're they're speaking the same language, but it would be like jazz versus, you know, rock. It's like it, they're just twisting it up and making it something their own. And, and for me, Instagram was a great way to sort of connect with this forward-looking uh, uh, set of artists. And on this film, I feel like super lucky that the budget was at the right place, that I was allowed to – like the person who did our festival poster was uh, Serge Serum, who's a, a, a painter that I met on Instagram – person who did our mask, uh, Dan, Dan Martin was totally looking at Sarah Sicken stuff. Like all of these were, were a way to at least try to push things forward. I love, uh, it's, it's so interesting. Uh, Billy and I have been talking about film criticism this weekend and about how often, uh, you'll watch a movie and they'll be like, yo, this movie is the shining meets 2001 it's like the two great flavors of kubrick into one thing and we use so many other films 
to describe movies. And I'm, a, I'm as guilty as that as anybody else, and I'm as guilty as looking backwards and wearing a Star Trek shirt right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but I do feel like we are just trapped in the things that we already love, and we're not finding the next thing to love. I know. And, and it's weird because the, the budget levels that movies that original movies are allowed to function at aren't, you know, whether it's Annihilation or, or any of these things that these $20 million budget movies that end up in Netflix. Yeah. Where you're like a really talented filmmaker, an original idea, but doesn't quite land. Yeah. yeah. You know? it, it can't run three weekends in the AMC. Yeah. And yeah. it's, it's weird because even as recently as like under the skin or, or oh, yeah. fucking, you know, I mean, I think it, you know, within the last 10 years, there was still this room for, for something new or something that felt new and original to come out and, and sort of blossom. And I just feel like we're, we're losing that more and more. And, well, it's becoming more and more like niche platforms, right? You, you know, you need to have twenty different right. streaming yeah. services. How do you, how do you think about your audience then? Like, do do you have a target audience yeah. in mind when you're doing it? What's what's the approach there? Yeah, it's weird. It's a, in some ways, your at least as a filmmaker, your audience is the people d- determining whether or not to write the check. So it's the platform. Hmm. So you're like, oh, you had a movie starring this person, this person, this mo- person. Here's a new movie with them. Right, Will you right. pay to get it made? But I think with anything, with any art, whether you're in prison and you have some uh, grape juice and some a toothbrush, you you find a way to paint with the, the resources you have. And that's sort of where we're at. I think the... At least for me, the thing that's important is to always be trying to express something new. Yeah. And you are working within a budget that will dictate how far your reach will also be, right? Yeah. 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 But it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I just think that a lot of the movies that we love, that we look at as the classic movies, were made sort of, how adjacent to the system, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's Hellraiser, or Texas Chainsaw, or The Shining, or anything. These are movies that did not come up through the system. They were somebody who had a vision for something, and they made it on their own. And now we look at them as sort of like that's that's the language of our cinema, yeah, our our genre cinema. And it's like that's cool, but our fucking job right now to honor those people is to keep the language progressing. Yeah, and what's interesting about those movies are, like, that was also when the system was changing, right? So you would have The Exorcist and Jaws make a ton of money, and suddenly studios went, oh, I can make that much money? So how do I keep uh, bringing in as many people as possible rather than catering to, like, you know, the people who would come up to the French Connection or whatever? Although French Connection was, like, a huge hit, too. Yeah. Yeah, man, that's the trick. It's like, how do you convince somebody that your new thing is something that is familiar enough people will show up for? Yeah, that there's an audience out there. Yeah. Well, I guess that's an interesting side of the question, too, though, is because 
in a, this is not totally related to our conversation, but I think Brad and I have also been talking about like, what is the audience's role in seeking out things that challenge them and how to engage with those things proactively. And I mean, we talk about the language of cinema and Kubrick and, you know, this becomes our language. Well, it's really hard to learn a new language. It's, it's tough. It's challenging. No, especially if the, I mean, what is the uh, field to play now? Like in in a lot of ways, it's festivals and conventions and in sort of outside the traditional distribution network. Uh, It was really interesting. Uh, Joe Bob, did um, the deathgasm mm-hmm, on uh, mm-hmm. Friday night on on Shutter? It's really interesting watching people discover that movie for the first time. Yeah. and that's a movie that uses really well defined language. And watching people experience that for the first time <laughs> and the joy that they had right. because the movie obviously does it really really well. Yeah. was like oh wow, like even this movie that did something really familiar, really well people are still discovering it and they did, they didn't hear about it until it was on this sort of platform with a profit. Right. Being like pay attention to this. Exactly. It's curation. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like Joe Bob becomes sort of like your emotional, like compatriot as you yeah. are trying to work through this new thing and tell you like, this is the part of the thing that's fucking rad. And let me tell you why. Like I, I dig that. I think that's important though. Yeah. We need to find it a bit more. And I, I think back when there were less entertainment options and less theaters and, and no streaming like Fangoria, when the thing hit on video or hit your town yeah. mm-hmm. on screen, you were there because there was one voice telling you, this is the thing to pay attention to. And we need to right now, uh, support, and engage with those few voices that are curating. And, and I think Fangoria is a great one. I think festivals are a great one. And, uh, you know, certain, certain uh, you know, film criticism uh, websites are... Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, I'm so glad that Fangoria is back. And, you know, congratulations on being on the cover of, I think, was it issue three? Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm retiring now. Yeah. I, <laughs> I will not ever do another movie unless it gets on the cover because... That's the bar you've set now. Yeah, no, in in regardless, everything is a personal achievement, like, as a filmmaker. And and for me, that was like, that's, those were real movies. The movies that were in Fangoria, that meant it was a real horror film. And to have that honor is something I will fucking cherish forever. Uh, and this podcast. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. Well, we're, I mean, sorry, we're almost yeah. at Fangoria level. That yeah. is a given. Yeah. Um, which is, so we're, we're at about minute 40 of our 400-minute chat with Travis Stevens. Six more hours to go. <laughs> Everybody take a bathroom break, and we'll be back for talks about history. Yeah. <laughs> um, what's, uh, so I, I, a couple questions just as we wrap up the conversation is, um, you know, you've worked, obviously, in the industry for a long time, and you've brought a lot of movies out onto the circuit, but... You know, now now it's yours, you know, and you get a chance to see it on screen with an audience, something that has Travis Stevens as yeah. the director of this. What's that emotional journey been like for you? As long as the conversations are about what the movie's trying to say, um, it's exciting. Yeah. You know, and that's it. Uh, I made the best movie I could make at this point in my career. And, uh, and the fact that I can have a 40 minute conversation with people about it, that is interesting to me 
like is a huge victory. Mm-hmm. You know, where we're talking about ideas. Right. We're not just talking about gags or or, or stars or, or whatever. You know, it's like, so yeah, feels great. And what comes next? I don't know. Some whiskey, moon pies, yeah. and you know, just looking for the next thing. I mean, I could go for some whiskey. Uh, oh, yeah, I know you could. Uh, yes. Right now, ah. <laughs> it's uh, it's no, it's it's chilly in here, and yeah. that's that's all. It's it's medicinal. <laughs> it's medicinal. That's fine. And he's wearing wearing layers right I'm now. I'm literally yeah, the only one wearing a hoodie, and it is absolutely freezing in here. <laughs> we have three chairs that we set on fire 20 yeah. minutes ago. The yeah. place is filled yeah. with the black smoke. Yeah, yeah. There's somebody in the closet. <gasps> it's a demon. I'm turning it into a radio play, guys. No, we carry on. Do that. Shut up. Okay. He's doing stuff. You should do that. <laughs> um, well, I guess I, I kind of, you know, just wrapping up the conversation. Uh, you know, you've had a conversation with us before with your compatriot Dave Lawson, uh, so you you might recall what the last question is. Um, but making movies is really, really hard, and yeah. we've been blessed to talk with a lot of independent filmmakers, and I think that's the through line through all those conversations. Um, but it's also really personal, and it's easy to feel very exposed. I think while you're trying to do something that's so clearly important to you as a filmmaker, which means that the stakes are very high when things are not going well and it's very easy to feel very lowly so for this project is there a moment that you look back at that you will use to boo you in future times that really makes it feel uh, all worthwhile uh, that is such an incredible question like for any artist to, to so thank you I think on this one there were there were so many times where the opportunity came with baggage or strings and whether it was external, like the people who said, Hey, we gave you this chance and this is what we expect or internal, which is like, here's your chance. Don't fuck it up. So I think that as at the darkest moments, my, the, the biggest takeaway from it is, is, you just need to take action. You just need to take that first step. And even if you take 10 steps and you're like, oh, that's the wrong direction, and you backtrack, just not being paralyzed by that sort of pressure uh, that you're putting on yourself or that you feel outside forces may be putting on you, to just remember the only way you get out of any situation is by taking action I think that was the, the sort of like biggest takeaway for me. And, and at every step of this movie, sort of like, well, what can I do about this feeling that I'm feeling right now? Reviews or festivals, or are they going to accept it or not, or distribution or whatever? Well, what can you do about it? And there's certain stuff that you can't. I can't do anything about that. And there's certain stuff where you're like, well, I could reach out to my friend over here and say, hey, do you want to check this out? So, yeah, I think it's just sort of remembering that all you can do, even if you can't control the outcome, is is take action. I love it. Thank you so much for coming on to the show again. Uh, congratulations on the movie, and I'm really looking forward to seeing the next Tinkered version. Uh, <laughs> be exactly the same, but more awesome. <laughs> yeah, more awesome. Uh, where is, is it, is it, is it still on the festival circuit? Where's the movie Festival going? circuit, uh, I have heard rumors of an October release. 
Okay. Which I assume means it'll be released in October. <laughs> I'm saying rumors because I'm not allowed to officially announce it. So yeah, no, but uh, I think no matter what part of the U.S. or the world you live in, if there is a genre festival that shows fucked up horror films, yeah. this will probably be playing there. Cool. Gotcha. So good. And uh, listeners, can we find you online? Do you have an Instagram that we can yeah. obsess uh, over? I'm blessed that I was apparently the first Travis Stevens on every social media platform. So oh. I am at Travis Stevens at Twitter, at Travis Stevens on Instagram, and at Travis Stevens on Facebook. And yeah. Huh. Congrats I, on that. I follow back. <laughs> right on. All right. Thank you. And uh, till next time, guys. And there you go. Man, Billy, so cold back there. <laughs> uh, well, I, you know, I came prepared. I had a sweatshirt. Uh, I should have brought a hoodie. <laughs> Didn't have a hoodie. But who cares? Because we had a really rad conversation with Travis Stevens. I am so thankful to that guy for continuing to take the time to chat with us lowly dorks. We really, really do appreciate it. And again, our thanks to everyone at the Chattanooga Film Festival for allowing us some space behind the scenes so we could set up shop and record our conversation. Yeah, you know, I for this conversation, I think correctly, you know, we focused in on on Travis's uh, directorial debut, but you know, do keep in mind he's he is genuinely a terrific producer and I love his approach to filmmaking for inclusiveness and the types of stories that he looks to tell and bring to the foreground. He is an incredibly talented individual and you you know, when we do say that we're grateful for it, truly, truly, he's great. So we are going to be bringing you many more conversations this month from the Chattanooga Film Festival. Next week, things are going to get a little wild. We're chatting with Dave Lawson <laughs> and a big bottle of Chattanooga whiskey. Sure. I Somebody has the name, uh, the Whiskey Fairy. I'm not sure who that is. Uh, that is Dave Lawson. Oh, right. That's and I right. think we decided he wasn't a fairy. He was an elf because of the live D&D show That's that true. he roped you to partake in. And, you know, if you're hearing this description, you're thinking, my goodness, that sounds like totally bonkers. It is, and it's why you need to go to the Chattanooga I Film I think what Festival. people are thinking is, my goodness, that sounds like a whole lot of alcohol. <laughs> and boy, are they right. Uh, so yes, come back next week where we're going to talk to Dave Lawson about the many projects that he is currently associated with, but with a primary focus on rustic films and the upcoming release of Sin Chronic. Yes. Starring Jamie Doran and Anthony Mackie. Oh my gosh. These they're Benson and Moorhead have now reached the stage where they're working with uh Avengers. Yeah. It's what? wild. Okay. Uh until next time, guys. Oh, wait, hold on, Billy. What's up? Where can people find you online? I oh, almost skimped yeah. on that. How dare you? I'm so excited about the Dave Lawson interview. <laughs> I am too, actually. Uh, so you can find me on the internets uh, at WBDAS on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Uh, and you can also find me uh, at Bill and Claire's Excellent Adventure, which is a podcast project with my nine-year-old daughter where we work to expand her cinematic horizons. Uh, I think we just had uh, Remember the Titans episode and uh, some bonus coverage for Avengers Endgame. So check that out. And follow the other dorks, uh, Lisa Gullickson, the wife dork, at Sidewalk Siren, Brian Young, at the Turtle Dork, Darren Smith, at the Disco Dork, and I am Brad Gullickson, at Mouth Dork, on all social medias. And until next time, guys, take care. Visions are worth fighting for. Why spend your life making someone else's dreams 